Well, we're going to be in James chapter 1 tonight, and I was telling Donnie a minute ago, every time there's a real small group, which nights like this you kind of expect it to be, I'm always reminded of one story. And it's a story about this preacher who preached in a real small church, a little cowboy church, and it was a real cold, hard winter day, and the preacher showed up, and one cowboy showed up. And they sat there and talked for a little bit, and the preacher said, well, what do you think we should do? you think we should have church, or should we go ahead and go home? And the cowboy said, well... If I went out to feed my cattle and only one showed up, I'd still feed him. I said, okay, well, the cowboy sat on the front row and the, and the preacher started preaching and he just let him have it, let him have both barrels and got done and they were sitting there talking. The preacher said, well, I'm glad you came today. What did you think of the sermon? And the cowboy said, well, if I went out to feed my cattle and just one showed up, I'd still feed him, but I wouldn't give him all the hay. Now, you'd think that's a setup to tell you we're going to get done quick. There's just one problem. I don't know how to preach without giving all the hay I got in my store. So um, I will also tell you, I, I, I really kind of had a hard time determining where to go tonight. Um, there was kind of a possible assignment on the table, and I just, I don't know, I was having a hard time. We have been in Sunday school uh, in our Sunday morning small group. We've been in James for a few weeks now, and on my runs, I happened to, at the same time, happened to have been listening to um, one of the pastors I enjoy listening to. He's preaching through James. So I've been there a lot. So that's where my thoughts went back to. And Tim has been taking us through in uh, Sunday mornings with some great insight, great discussion. And, and so that's kind of where my thoughts kept going back to. So that's where we're going to go. And I'll trust the grace of God and his sovereign hand that I've arrived in the right place for tonight. And we'll just leave it at that. So let's read the whole of tonight's text, which is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And we'll pray and we'll get to work. How about it? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, let the rich and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for your word, your full revelation given to us for our instruction, for our reproof, for our correction. Lord, thank you, Father, for the grace and mercy uh, won for us and most clearly shown to us on the cross of Christ in which our hope and our very life lies and rests. And by your grace and your presence and your Holy Spirit here tonight, open your word. And God, I pray and trust that you have led me to the place to say what needs to be said tonight. Help me again to speak to myself first, Lord. And I will trust that you will do what you have already purposed to do with our time tonight for our good, for your glory. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So one little note just, and I don't think I need to say this to this crowd, but just so we know, so there's, because sometimes there's a, just, I don't know, a cultural thing. Brothers in all these passages means brothers and sisters. Just so ladies, you don't think you're off the hook. Just so you know. Uh, this is brothers as in uh, kin in Christ, all inclusive. But when you're studying a book of the Bible, it is important to ask some basic questions. Always important. This is no matter where you're at, there's some basic questions you should always ask of your text. Who is writing? To whom are they writing? For what purposes? Specific in that place purposes are they writing? And then how does this apply to me? Now, this is always important, but I especially think it's important for the New Testament gospels and epistles because, and it's, it's well, it's equally important for the Old Testament books as well, uh, because these letters, especially the letters, were written to a specific person. Uh, they were written by a specific person. Most of the time, we know the name of the person who wrote the book, and they're written to a specific person or group of people, and usually for specific reasons. Each New Testament book, however, obviously, clearly, I think we understand this here in this room, also carries direct and heavy implication and application to all members of Christ's church since they're written to believers, right? But you have to take a step back and say, who was he talking to and how would they have understood this text, what he was saying, right? So about the author, just a brief little bit about the author. Jesus, or James, rather, James was Jesus' little brother. One of his brothers, meaning literal brothers, but actually we know that he was his half-brother. Jesus was physically the son of God through the Holy Spirit. And the rest of his brothers were sons of Joseph. Now this, you might think otherwise, but this didn't give him really any particular inroad or early revelation of the faith to faith because most likely... He didn't believe in Jesus, that he was the son of God, as most of Jesus' family didn't, until after the resurrection. But we also know that James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Which means that when he bought in, he bought in big. Right? He bought in big. And he was evidently a man of deep faith and able teaching to have been given that position. Another evidence of James' deep faith and commitment to the gospel and to his Savior is the tradition that he was violently martyred in Jerusalem at the direction of the Pharisees around the year 62. Now a little bit about the audience, the specific audience that James is writing to. We're actually told very clearly who that audience is. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James is writing to those Jews living outside of Jerusalem and Palestine at this time who have believed in Jesus and were now part of the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, right? That's his, that's his audience for the letter. Some of them would have been coming under persecution, some quite severe persecution for their new faith. Some of them, however, were in areas where they were doing quite well, socially and especially economically, financially. That's going to bear on a little bit later in our text. James was writing, as always, with some very specific purposes in mind. And those purposes become pretty clear as you read the book. I often say James is just mean sometimes in the way he says so. Some, he's, just, he's just mean sometimes. But that doesn't mean it's inappropriately so. Uh, because one of the things that we need to realize is that Jewish believers frequently operated with the assumption that because they were Jewish believers, they had a position of preference 
even in the new family of God. They didn't. And neither do we, though we may have been believers for a long time. Very dedicated, faithful, church-attending believers. That does not mean we have a position of preference in the family of God, because we just don't, right? We have to understand that. How can, and does it mean our life will be any more or less troubled? Actually, actually it does mean quite often it will be more troubled than others. But what we do know is that it means it, our life and everything in it has a higher purpose when we belong to God. And so in chapter 1, very quickly, we begin to see some answers to some very common and very important questions. This one comes up all the time. Anytime you start talking about spiritual matters with people or start thinking through things, this one comes up. Why do bad things happen? Right? Particularly, why do bad things happen to good people? Even more particularly, why do good things happen, bad things happen, rather, to God's people? To believers? Why do bad things come? Why does suffering come? And how do we get through them? What will God do for us in those times? What are we supposed to do with those times? These are important questions. These are important questions. And the answers you give to these questions can mean the difference between between weathering trials and being destroyed by them. And I think the response to that often starts with, we'll call it a presupposition about God, a wrong understanding, generally speaking, or perception about God's nature, His character, a lack of understanding. It's a very basic truth. Think with me about this. Why do many people reject the gospel, reject religion, reject church? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that are stated. But one is especially in our culture, that people can't, people won't, believe that a loving God would send people to hell, would let someone, anyone, go to hell. The problem with that statement is an ignorance about the nature of God. Because, you see, God has more than one aspect or attribute to His nature, and He is all of those simultaneously, equally, fully, and perfectly. And if you take the basic, the main two, when we're talking about the gospel, the two that I always, always come to my mind, if you contrast love, mercy, forgiveness, if you contrast love with holiness, justice, wrath, we have a hard time fitting those two together. We do. We have a hard time making sense of that. But if you elevate one over the other, you miss the clarity of God's character and the entirety of what the gospel is about. You do. I mean, if if God were to allow all sin to just go unpunished, not only would that be unjust, it would be unloving, right? And that's a whole other discussion. I'll be glad to engage with with that earlier. But this this is one of the understandings we get, or one of the reasons we get wrong answers to why bad things are exist in the world. We as a culture, even as a church culture many times, we don't want to grapple, we don't want to to wrestle with God's justice. This mic cable is driving me bonkers. Give me some slack. All we want to focus on and talk about and enjoy is God's love and grace. And we want the love and love and love and love. But you can't have one and have the truth of the gospel. You can't have one, not, not fully, not, not really, without the other. Justice and mercy are both equally present and effective and necessary in God's character and in the gospel. Now we can begin to turn around and answer the question of why bad things exist. Why suffering exists. Why death still occurs. Why bad things happen. Why our world is so jacked up. 
Because sin has consequences, both eternally and temporally. And the love of God, which cannot, which we would want to go to and run to to overlook our sin in order to show us that love, has to be equally tempered with the justice and the wrath and the holiness of God, which cannot overlook our sin. Right? So that kind of just explains why this question is so common. But even that, even that general knowledge, even understanding that, it just falls short sometimes when a believer, a faithful believer, someone who has faith in Christ, and possibly they've been faithful and served God their whole life, and maybe they've just been taught somehow, they've got in their mind that, that life and following God is all about blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing and nothing else. And then we hit a wall. We go through a trial. And we, we kind of need a way, we have to have a way to make sense of suffering in the life of a believer. And we find the answer, I think, here. I think for now, just for, just for sake of framework, let's, let's put the general responses to that question, to why bad things happen to me as a believer, in two categories. Presupposition and providence. This may not make sense to you, it makes sense to me, so I'm going to use it. The presupposition answer says, I'm a good Christian. I'm blessed of God. I'm under grace. I'm one of God's people. So why is this happening to me? Right? It automatically reminds me of Naomi in Ruth chapter 1. I go back there every time. The providence answer, the the one who, who knows that God is sovereign and won't let go of that, says this way. By the grace of God, I'm a Christian. I'm blessed. I'm under grace. I belong to him. Because of that, somehow I know this is happening for my ultimate good and for his glory. And I have trusted him then and I will trust him now. Right? So here we go. We're going to dig into these verses, hopefully seeing how they steer us toward the providence answer and away from the presupposition answer to suffering and faith and doubt and all the things that we wrestle with. And we're basically going to look at two questions about bad things. Why and how. Why they happen and how we deal with it. Why do, per, how, why do trials happen to a person belong, that belongs to God and how do we begin to move through it? Because, I mean, we know trials are coming. For some of us, they have repeatedly. For some of us, if you haven't had one yet, they will. They're coming. And for some of us, both. We've had them and we know there's more coming. So look at verses 2 to 4 with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is really cool, because this is one of those places in Scripture that we actually have a really clear answer to our question. Quite simply, trials, difficulties, suffering, about which we in our location really, frankly, in the Western church... We know very little. They all have at least one clear purpose every time. That is to mature us in Christ. It's to continue to grow us up. To to demonstrate to those around us as we grow up through those trials and our, hopefully by the grace of God, more progressively Christ-like response to those things, the gospel in us and through us. It's to grow us. It's to develop us. It's to mature us. It's to show, put it this way, it's to show you your current level of character in Christ and to develop that character further. A trial never comes to a believer 
without God having and making a purpose for it. Never, ever, ever. If nothing else and nothing you can figure out at the time more specific, you can know it has this purpose. It's to help you grow. You know the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's kind of like that. So in other words, when we're talking to one another as believers, why are things happening? You you could kind of say, because God. It's kind of like I say to my kids, and I like, I'm a little sadistic with my kids and I do things that drive them crazy. One of my favorite things to do is when they ask me, why do I have to do this or why do I have to do that? I'll say, because reasons. It works for me. Right? Some of your parents are thinking, I'm remembering that one. That's simple. I can, I can use that. But why? Because God. However, count it all joy? Really? Really, James? Seriously? That's tough. That's, that's a different level. Admittedly, it is and difficult, may not even be a strong enough word, to count it all joy when you're in the middle of the worst trials and suffering and grief and loss. However, and you've probably heard this before, there's an important distinction between joy and happiness that I think might help. It's an illustration I've used often. often. One is superficial. The other is more subtle, more significant, more more profound. One is dependent on your circumstances. One is not. Steady. Happiness, this is the illustration I've, I've used for years and years and years. Happiness is like the sail on a sailboat. Right? You know the sail on a sailboat, it gets flitters, like I'm doing. So it's flying around my head. There was something there. I wasn't, I'm not going nuts. There was something flying around my head. It's like when you're walking through the park. And you walk through the spider web and nobody else sees the spider web. They just see you go. (laughs) Right at a great moment. (laughs) So happiness is like the sail on a boat, right? It's above the water. It gets, it, it flitters from side to side, depending on the direction of the wind, the heading of the ship and the handling of the helmsman. It, it, it gets beaten and battered and tattered and torn through use, right? And it, it changes as the circumstances determine. Joy, on the other hand, is like the keel. Of the boat. If you know a little bit about sailboats, most of them, the smaller, narrow ones, have a keel. It's a fin on the bottom of the boat that slices through the water on the underside of the of the surface of the water. That's the thing. That's the piece that keeps the boat when the wind hits the sail from tipping the boat over. That's the thing that slices through the water and everything up top. The waves are moving and the wind's going and the sails going and responding to the helmsman and moving with the wind. And this keel is steady. That's the difference between joy. And happiness. Does that help? Now with that kind of understanding. Now we can see the reality and the helpfulness of this phrase. Especially in the context of these three verses. When you go through trials. Rest in your joy. In your peace in Christ. You may not be happy. He's not telling you be happy in your trial. I lost my job today. No, that's not what he's saying. But rest in your joy when trials come. Because you can know that somehow, and probably in a way you cannot see at the moment, God will use it to grow you and develop you and mature you. The word for testing in verse 3, just a couple of words that I picked out to go a little deeper with. 
The word for testing in the Greek, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correctly. I didn't call my, my living uh, phonetic uh, person I call for Greek all the time. Dokimion is in verse 3 for the word for testing. This is a testing that proves or shows the quality of something. Like we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested or proven genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a testing that proves the quality of something. The word for faith, according to the Greek DBL dictionary, is pistis, which means a state of certainty with regard to belief. The ESV, ESV study Bible notes commentary says it's a settled trust and confidence in God based on his character and promises as revealed in Scripture. So this is the way I say it. This is the way I marry these two together. I've said it many, many times before. You may have heard me say it before, and you'll hear me say it again as long as I'm breathing. Don't wait for the trial to come before you decide whether or not you're going to trust God. It's coming. Decide now. Trust Him now. Faith in Him now. Settle the question of your eternity now. That's the only way you can know for sure that when the trials do come, they will be for your good. They will be for the testing, both the developing and the proving of your faith. Your already settled confidence in God. Decide now whether or not you will trust God before the trial comes. Because it's coming sooner or later. Decide now that when it comes, you will trust him as sovereign Lord over all, over every detail. And then when the trial comes, again, you may not be happy about it. But you will have some foundation upon which to stand to weather it. And it will have God's intended effect in your life. So hopefully, hopefully, we see a piece of the why question. Because God... For our good, to grow us for His glory, working in us. Because God. How? Funny you should ask. Because the next verses, I think, tell us at least a piece, a very important piece of exactly that. And while we may not have here specific steps for your specific situation, we have kind of a foundation, a go-to answer that always is part of of the issue. Read with me verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. We won't unpack all of those, but obviously we're going to focus on the answer to the question, how? And it's right at the beginning. Warren Wiersbe great Bible commentator and teacher, had a friend. And she had a stroke, very severe stroke, and her husband had gone blind and was in poor health at this point, and he had been taken to a hospital where at this point they were pretty sure he was going to die, to go to be with the Lord. And, and so Wearsby uh, went to visit, and she asked him, what are you asking God to do for us? As they were talking, he was, because he, of course, he said, you know, I'm going to pray for you, but what are you going to ask God to do? And he said, I'm asking God to help you and to strengthen you. Good answer, right? Surprising him, this was her response. That, that's good. I appreciate that. But would you pray about one more thing? 
Pray that I will have the wisdom to not waste any of this. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. That's how we begin to to wade through the muck of life and our situation and our trials. That's how we begin to see the next step. It might be all we see, but how we begin to see it. It's all about perspective. Wisdom clarifies perspective. And when your perspective helps you see or at least acknowledge that there's purpose in all of this, it gives you strength. It builds faith. It enables stamina. For some of us, it staves off insanity. I've heard the quickest way to insanity is to lose your purpose. When you know there's purpose, it makes all the difference in the world. Here's the problem with wisdom. Most of the time, it comes by experience. (laughs) Granted, God can grant and supernaturally give wisdom. He did so for Solomon. But did you ever notice, as you're reading the story of Solomon, that his God-given wisdom was cultivated and grown and developed by his curiosity and his learning? It was. Most of the time, the channel through which wisdom comes is experience. So don't separate this verse from the previous three. The reference to asking wisdom and lacking wisdom is about asking for wisdom or lacking wisdom for the trials, which we are to count as joy, trusting God to grow us in Christ. So if we're going to ask God for wisdom, and we should, we might be prepared to expect to learn some of it the hard way. It's kind of a catch-22, right? You need wisdom for the trials, but much of the time you're going to gain wisdom for the trials through the trials. What? So where do we start? You decide before that you're going to trust Him and you begin to ask Him for wisdom. Before the trials. Much like you settle your faith in Christ and your confidence and trust in God, you ask Him for wisdom before the trials. As you're reading your Bible, as you're growing in your faith. We ask for strength. Yes, we do. We ask for patience. Careful when you ask for patience. But we ask for stamina and humility. And all these are good things. But the best thing you can ask for is wisdom. Which is why when Solomon asked for it, God responded so greatly. And God, by His grace, will give wisdom. This is, this is one of those requests we know we'll get a good answer to. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we ask for wisdom in, with a right heart for the trials that are coming, God always answers in the affirmative. This is one request he always says yes to when asked from a right heart and sincere and gospel-driven heart. We're told that in verses 5 and 6. Verse 6, however, is one that I find is quite often misappropriated. This verse is quite often used to argue that whatever we ask, no matter what our request is, God will grant it if we just ask in enough faith with no doubting. That is not the scope of this verse. I want to make that clear. That is not the scope. Your generic prayer life and prayer list is not the scope of that verse. It's not. It must be connected with verse 5. We know that because of the conjunction, but, at the beginning of verse 6. That connects it with what just came before. We can always ask God for wisdom when we're asking for what's coming, knowing that He will give it. And we can know that God gives wisdom, that the wisdom God gives, rather, will help us 
in and through our trials, to know that he's in control and working. Ask God for wisdom. That's the how. Now, we work through verses 9 and 11, and there's kind of a little bit of a shift, and they seem to be pretty straightforward. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Pretty straightforward. Pretty clear admonition to not put, put too much stock in your worldly wealth. Right? Keep in mind who James's audience was. That is the Jewish believers of Christ scattered abroad from Jerusalem. Some of them were facing persecution of their new faith and were very poor. Some very severe persecution, which could lead to, from the Jewish mindset and traditions and thinking, which could lead to the mistaken thought that somehow they were either sinning or had fallen out of favor with God. That being the reason for their persecution. Conversely, some of the Jewish believers, as we said before, were doing quite well. Like, quite well. Like, very financially well. And they wound up in places of peace and prosperity. And they were prone... Actually, we know that this audience, some of this audience was prone to think that because they were rich because they'd been blessed by God. And they'd been best blessed by God because they were good Jewish Christians with more riches. And, the rich, and see the cycle they got into? They might be prone to think that somehow they were closer to God than their counterparts than that were being made to suffer. A modern parallel of this, and some of you know this is a sore spot with me in the general theology of America. A modern parallel to this that lends itself to this kind of thinking would be the prosperity gospel. I, I feel my blood boiling as I even say those words. Proponents of this kind of teaching, and I'm not, calling, I'm not calling names, I'm stating facts. Proponents of these are people like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, Ross Parsley, Jesse Duplanet, to a slightly lesser degree, Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and some of his contemporaries. I'm not slinging mud. That's fact. This is what they teach. The prosperity gospel in a nutshell teaches that God always, always shows his love for you by blessing you with stuff and health. Health and wealth gospel is another name for it. Material wealth, physical health, and only good things. It teaches that if you have enough faith, if you love God enough, and most often, as I have personally experienced, if you give enough money, I really got an envelope from one of these guys with a cloth that had been prayed over in his prayer tower and said, if you take this cloth and send your money, the blessing that's in this cloth will be released in your life. Ooh. If you do those things, then God will respond with material and physical blessing. And if you haven't received your blessing, then you just need to have more faith. You just don't have enough faith. Because God never wants you to suffer or be sick or be poor. There's no room for the teaching of James in that teaching. None. If you follow God, you will always be blessed. Which is true, but not the way they define it. Because they have a very narrowly material application and definition of the word blessed. If you belong to God or follow God better or have more faith and God loves you, then you'll be healed of all your diseases. You'll have all your bills paid supernaturally. And everything will be better for you circumstantially. You might say it this way, the more holy you are, the more stuff you'll get. I actually heard one of these guys twist Acts 3.21 to say, you know why Jesus is still in heaven and hadn't come back yet? Because you don't have all your stuff yet. That is heresy. And you need to stop listening to those people because they're lying to you. Our experience and the word of God tells us that is just silly to think that. And James makes it pretty clear. 
that it's silly. You cannot evaluate your worth to God based on your stuff. You can't. You cannot evaluate your worth to God. You're standing with with him and how much he loves you based on your circumstances. Are you trying to tell me that God loves the martyred missionary less than the wealthy church pew sitter? No, certainly not. Does he love the sick person who's never healed of their disease less than the healthy person? No, of course not. Don't let your situation determine your worth or your standing before God. But James says, let the brother who's in trial take joy in the fact that he shares with Christ in his sufferings. And he will be rewarded for it by the grace of God. Let the brother who's been giving, given much, let him rejoice that he has the means to give generously for the sake of the gospel. And that this can't begin to compare to the riches that await him in heaven with Jesus. After all, both men will die and stand before God. Both men have the heat of the sun beating down on them. Though one will endure the heat of the sun, maybe a little more comfort and style than the other one right now. As I've said, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. But how often do we see someone buried in this world possessing nothing except the plot in which they lay? And in some cases, not even that. Tell me God loves them less than the other person? No. No. We all stand under the same righteous, holy wrath of a perfect God. We all are offered by the cross the same grace. We who are His all owe everything to the same Savior and the same gospel under the same grace. Why would we let ourselves fall into thinking that somehow because of what I do or how good I am or where I live or how often I'm sitting in a pew that my position is any better than someone else? But we do. If we're really honest with ourselves, we do. And James, in addressing the trials of some... And the relative gain of others reminds us that our worth, as should our confidence, our trust, our joy, our wisdom, our hope, our very life, comes from and rests in Christ alone. And not in our religious performance, in our, in our blessedness, materially, physically, or otherwise. He just dispels that. Because that was the thinking he was dealing with here as well. Prosperity gospel is not new. Neither is the poverty gospel either. Poverty gospel says if you give all your money away, you're more holy than the rich people. That's just as false as prosperity gospel. And one of the, the preacher I'm listening to opened his sermon on one of these texts by asking, should Christians be rich or poor? And Tim asked that in Sunday school. See, I turned him on to the same preacher getting ready for Sunday school. And he asked the question, should Christians be rich or poor? And I said, yes. He said, you weren't supposed to say that. You knew the answer to that question before the rest of the people did. Verse 12, where we're going to finish tonight, is a great encouragement for those of us who find ourselves in the trial. And even whether you're rich or poor or wherever you live, sooner or later, trials are coming. Hardships are coming. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What an encouraging thought. Understanding with the larger counsel of God's word that you cannot do that on your own. 
you will not stand the trial. Not the way we should. You will not stand the trial. You will not see it work for your good. You will not experience it the way you're supposed to unless you belong to him in Christ. And only then, it's not you standing the trial. It's him. We always have to clarify that. Any good thing that we exhibit in our life is not us. Don't let yourself take credit. I did pretty good this week. No, you didn't. The grace of God had a pretty good effect in your life this week is a better way to say that. Right? And knowing that, putting that in, that it's, it's, it's glory to God and it's Him doing it, He, he presses us. Because we still have to, with the grace of God, we still have to stand face to face with whatever the trial is. Stand firm. Be confident in Christ. Don't waver. Trust God. Your trial, whatever it is, will not last forever. Now, when you're there in the middle of that, the enemy is very, very good at his job. And he knows this book far better than any of us, by the way. Don't be offended by that. It's a truth. You can be wrong if you want to, thinking you know this better than Satan. You do not. He's very good at his job. And he knows exactly what buttons to push. And when you're stuck in the middle of the trial in the dark place, does he ever know how to work on you? And you know what he says? You're never going to get past this. And there's nobody coming to help you. And you are all alone. None of that is true. None of that is true. Not if you belong to him. Your trial will not last forever. And when you get to the other side of the gates of heaven, you will receive what he calls crown of life. Eternal life in the very physical presence of the one who made you and saved you. And not just because you've endured the, endured the trial well, but because his grace was evident in you as you endured the trial. What an encouraging thought. Right? What a, what a great word to hear if you're stuck in the middle of a dark place. And don't, don't let yourself be fooled into thinking, yeah, Dave, but you're up there. You, you don't know the dark place. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. And I know what I'm talking about when I talk about the lies the enemy will tell you. And I know what I'm talking about when, when I get to this. It's not you that makes it through. I run hard and press through and push through when I want to do anything but endure that trial. It is the heat, the dark of spiritual battle, knowing, if nothing else, that God is in control. God is in control. Even if you say it at the moment, I don't like it right now, God. I'm not happy about it, but I know you're in control. And on the other side of this, somehow, God, you're going to make me better. And one day you're going to make me perfect. And not because I earned it. But because of your grace in me, sustaining me, compelling me, driving me, keeping me alive sometimes. Right? You have to die to his grace for any of that to be true. So two very quick points of application. And that's it. We're just, we're just going to pray together. Small group tonight. We won't sing tonight. We'll just pray. And you want to explore this further? You've got my number. I'll give you my number. We'll we'll get together and talk further if you want.
two very quick points of application. One of where you know where I'm going to go. Number one, in order to make sure that your trials are working for, in your life, what this text says they're for, you need to make sure that you belong to Christ. And just in case there's someone here tonight who is uncertain, even in the slightest, here's how you do that. I want you to think, you've heard this before if you've heard me talk, God, man, Christ response. That's where we're going to go, right? You have to come to understanding that God, as we said, God is holy. He's perfect, he's right, he's pure. Holy encompasses all of that. Man, on the other hand, is not. Now, I, I'm not, it's 7 o'clock, I'm not going to go into a long exposition. God is perfect, we are not. Turn on the news for 30 seconds. For that matter, look in the mirror for 30 seconds. We are not perfect, God is. Those two can't come together. Because if perfection touches imperfection, what happens? It's not perfect anymore. Holiness touches unholiness. It's not holy anymore. So we have a very serious problem. My sin, even if no matter how good I think I am, somewhere in my life there's sin, my sin separates me from a holy, perfect God, irreparably so. And there is nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do to be not unholy enough and be holy enough to get from here to here. Nothing. That's bad news. Here's the good part. But Christ came. But Christ came and did something that I cannot do. It's not possible for me to do. He made a way for me to know this perfect creator God in love and in mercy and in forgiveness rather than in wrath and judgment under which I am and to which I'm doomed. He made the way. And he did that by dying a death that took my place as punishment before a holy, righteous God. As I said earlier, that cannot overlook sin. Right? Christ died for me. Christ died for you in your place. You have to come to grips with those things. God is holy and I am not. And there's nothing I can do about it. But Jesus died for me. And then you respond. Here's how you respond. You turn from this. You turn from sin. Whatever you know it is now. Whatever you don't know yet, you're going to know it is in the future. You turn away from sin. You turn away from self. You repent of that. And you trust in Christ and what he's done at the cross. You place your hope. You place your faith. You place your confidence there. Because nowhere else will do any good. God is holy, man is sinful, Christ came. You respond in faith and repentance and trust in Christ. That is the only way, the only way, the only way to make sure you belong to Christ. And I, 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 I've been in church a long time. And have you trusted Jesus? I teach Sunday school. And have, have you trusted Jesus? I preach in the pulpit. Have you trusted Jesus? I trusted Jesus a long time ago, and I've been in church. Stop! No! Have you trusted Jesus is the question. We add so much to it, and you can't do that. Because the problem is here, this is the tough part. If you think you've added something to it, the, the probability is, the possibility is, maybe you didn't really do that. Because you can't do Jesus and something. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the equation. And it's the only way to know that you belong to him. 
That's how you make sure. Once you know that, the question is settled. Then you know, going forward, whatever you run into, you don't have to like it. You don't have to be happy about it. It's for your good. It's for your good and for his glory somehow, right? Number two, once you're certain that you are his, this is the how. That's the why. Here's the how. Once you're certain you are his, ask him for wisdom. There's not a risk asking God for wisdom. There's not an automatic, I ask for wisdom and the trial's coming right away. That's, it doesn't work that way. Right? Some of us will simply never see the trials that some of our believers on the other side, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the globe see. We just won't. But we'll have our trials of our own. Ask him for wisdom, ask regularly, and ask often. And when the trial comes, don't cash in and quit. Don't check out. Trust him through it. Know that it has a higher purpose. Decide this now and start asking for wisdom now before the trial comes. And then when it comes, go back to where we started. Rest in your joy, which is only yours by the grace of God in Christ alone. So if you find yourself in the trial, be encouraged. And I know... I know the automatic response when someone says, when you're in the dark place and someone says, be encouraged, I know what you want to say back. I know what you want to say back sometimes. But I'm telling you, because I know where you are. I have been there. Be encouraged. Stand firm and rest in joy. And somehow, grab on to the why, grab on to the how, and trust God. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your word. And... Thank you, God, for the way you have taught me some of these things in my own life, both through your word and through practice. God, you, you know every person in the room. You made them. You made their heart. You made their mind. You know where they are. You know where they've been, and you know where they're going. So, God, work these things in our life. Work a settled faith and confidence and trust in God in our life. Because you see what's coming and we don't. Help us, God, to, to wrestle with these things even when we're not there yet. So that when the time comes, we will already have determined where our faith is. That somehow by your grace, you will work it for our good and for your glory. God, if there's anyone here who has not settled with certainty that they are yours. God, I pray that you would possibly even tonight work that in their heart. Whether they speak to me or a friend or a family member, Lord, bring them to that place tonight. And as we leave this place, some facing trials, 
some placing relative peace just as James' audience did. Help us to remember that regardless of where we stand, it's all your grace, every step, every breath. And we thank you for it. So for whatever you're going to do in these lives, we will give you thanks, even the hard parts. So as we leave this place, keep us by that grace. Help us to rest in that joy. For our good, for your glory, you work. In Jesus' name, amen.